Hi guys, welcome to the episode. On today's show, I've got Rachel Balkovic. Rachel is a research and development fellow at Driveline Baseball in Seattle and has worked in professional baseball for seven years as a strength conditioning coach, including roles at the Houston Astros, the St. Louis Cardinals, and the Chicago White Sox. I had a fascinating conversation with Rachel where she discusses her research on gaze tracking in baseball, as well as lower limb biomechanics. Um, And we also get into her passion for organizational development and plans to become a GM of a professional baseball team. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode, but please support the show and subscribe and check out the show notes if there's anything you want to refer to at informperformance.com. Just want to say a big thank you to Tim Tam, a brand that makes vibration or percussion-based recovery products, who have really kindly sponsored the launch of this podcast. They are responsible for the power massager and more recently the pulse massager. And both are great examples of tools that you can use for soft tissue recovery, especially when you're on the road. If you'd like to get your hands on a free power massager, then we're actually running a competition with Tim Tam. All you have to do is subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at informperformance. Send us a screenshot that you've subscribed to the DMs of the Inform Performance Instagram page. Then in a few weeks, we'll pick a subscriber at random to win the Tim Tam Massager. And in the meantime, check out Tim Tam's Instagram page at Tim Tam Recovery. Hi, Rachel. Um, thank you for giving up the time and coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for being uh, so flexible and getting me on here. No, no problem. And just for the listeners, could you give us a bit of an intro into your education, your background, and kind of how you got to where you are today? Um, Well, it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try to just shorten it up. Um, I did my undergraduate degree, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. It's the middle of the country for anyone listening internationally. Um, And then I did my undergraduate degree mostly at the University of New Mexico, where I played college softball. And then after that, I went and did an internship with Athletes Performance, better known as EXOS, and then I did my graduate assistantship with LSU, um, which is a pretty, again, for just people who may, may not know, pretty notable um, collegiate athletics there at LSU. So that was an excellent experience to be in a really elite level culture uh, where they were just extremely successful in a lot of different sports and the expectations are really high there. And then left there and went, did a, a string of internships surrounding professional baseball, but with the Chicago White Sox, um, the St. Louis Cardinals, I went and did a small internship in the Dominican Republic. And then another long story short was hired full-time by the St. Louis Cardinals to be their minor league strength and conditioning coordinator, which um, for those of you who don't know, that just means like the minor league system for professional baseball is extremely extensive. So I was overseeing 10 strength coaches, about 250 athletes, and everything that surrounds strength and conditioning, nutrition, um, all those things. And then three seasons after that, I was with the Houston Astros as a Latin American coordinator for them and also for the, as the AA strength coach for them. And then um, this past year, I quit with the Houston Astros and moved to Europe, of all places, and went to Amsterdam for a degree in human movement sciences, uh, just MSc in human movement sciences. So that degree is a research degree. And it, um, you know, this is something you guys are probably more familiar with for your crowd is that it's a year of classes and then a year of research or a research project you're supposed to complete. 
So I did a year of classes in Amsterdam, and now I'm in at Driveline Baseball in Seattle doing my research assignment, mostly in gaze tracking for hitters and also in pitching biomechanics. And what specifically are you looking into with that research? Um, so for um, twofold, so for the pitching biomechanics, it's basically looking at the effects of different loading strategies. So basically the way that a pitcher loads will determine um, like theoretically, the hypothesis is that it will determine the timing of the pelvis and the thorax, and then also the different kinetics for shoulder and elbow. So the hypothesis is that the more hip dominant and or posterior dominant strategy, however you want to name it, will yield better timing for the pelvis and thorax, and then in turn will then take stress off of the shoulder and the elbow. So we're going to examine um, their foot pressure on the body track mat basically and also their like with 3d motion capture their all of their different kinematics and kinetics and try to like understand what the hip loading strategy what different hip loading strategies do up the chain basically as a pitcher throws a baseball and then from the hitting side of things or the hitting project i'm working on is gaze tracking so that's a little bit more out there pitching biomechanics has been studied for a really long time um so hitting the gaze tracking has not. So it's um, definitely there's been some work done by a guy named Dr. Mann and uh, Dr. Peter Fatty and also Dr. Moeller in Australia and um, Dr. Fatty's in Illinois. But they've done some work surrounding this uh, like a lot in cricket of all things and then a little bit in baseball. Um, but it just is a really unexplored area. So basically gaze tracking is literally just tracking exactly where your pupils are looking. So in the sport of baseball, it's really important to track a ball, obviously. But what is funny is that like there's a there's an old adage in baseball, it's keep your eye on the ball. And the truth of the matter is, is that you actually don't keep your eyes on the ball at all <laughs> sometimes. So tracking gaze strategies is um, not only difficult to do, but it's really interesting because something that we've thought has happened in the sport for a really long time is actually not happening. So basically the, the gaze tracking study that we're going to be doing here at driveline is really, really out there because most of this, the, of the research that's been done, in fact, all of it has been done on pitching machines and even in cricket, it's been done on bowling machines that are just like you, you put a ball in a machine and it spits it out. Um, and then the hitters and the batters in cricket try to hit it, right? But what we know, what we do know from the research about gaze tracking is that actually the most important cues and the most important um, information that a batter is getting is coming from the pitcher's movement. So actually the research doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they've cut out the pitcher and they're just using ball flight. They're just using a machine. They put the ball in the machine and then it pops out and goes wherever it goes. So they've completely cut out a really important, and I would even say like, 80% of the important attentional cueing is coming from the pitcher or in cricket, the bowler. And so to cut that out when we're doing research is actually like it, it almost, I don't want to say it negates the research because we've learned some really interesting thing, things over the past 10 to 20 years that this has been studied. Um, but what we're trying to do at driveline is the study that hasn't been done yet, which is live pitching. So we are actually taking gaze tracking technology. So we use a company called Pupil Labs, which is, I think, one of the best out there. There's not a whole lot of companies, but um, there's a few. And Pupil Labs is supposed to be the best. So we selected their technology and we're kind of manually um, 
doing this calibration with a live pitcher and trying to sort through the data and make sure what we're doing is actually like collecting useful information. Um, so at the moment, we're just kind of doing a pilot study for this. If you can't tell, I'm really excited about this. I skipped over the, the <laughs> I skipped over the pitching biomechanics a little bit, and I'm I'm really like um, investing a lot of time and learning more about the gaze tracking and spending some time on that study because it's just it hasn't been done yet ever. Yeah. Um, so it's really fun to work on a project that's that challenging, and we don't even know if it's going to work out, you know. But we're going to try, and there's you know some definitely some like promising results from what we've seen so far as far as like our ability to do the study. So I guess as well the the body of literature on pitching biomechanics is is quite vast compared to looking at um, yeah. visual tracking. You know it is, but why the reason why I chose the study with pitching biomechanics and the hip loading strategy is because that actually has never been studied, which is mind blowing, but also at the same time, a lot of the research that's been done thus far in pitching biomechanics is put out there by orthopedic surgeons. And so they're looking at the joint that's injured, right? But like from my perspective as, as a strength and conditioning pre- professional for the past 10 years, and just something I've been fascinated with due to my own injuries and my, the mentorship that I've received is like everything starts, you know, from the ground up and from the hips. And so there's been of all the research and I've got like me personally, I have 120 articles on my hard drive. So I know there's gotta be close to 200 out there of like pitching biomechanics. 90% of the articles that I have are on like the shoulder and the elbow. And then I would say 10% are on like the pelvis and the trunk. And there's like one or two, literally one or two that have even like covered the lower half, the legs, you know, what's going on in the lower half. And in my opinion, that's probably the most important part. And we're just cutting it out. We've done all this research on, you know, the shoulder and the elbow, but not on what's happening in the lower half at the beginning stages of the pitch to cause stress on the shoulder and elbow. So for as much research as has been done, like, believe it or not, this research study will probably be the first of its kind or, or, you know, the first five of its kind. So both kind of groundbreaking in their own ways, which is fun. Like, this is the type of research that I want to do. I don't want to do something that's already been done before. And I guess with the, the biomechanics and the pitching, you're looking more at the well, potentially the root of the problem that you get at the elbow and the shoulder rather than going straight to the, the source of pain or problem. Exactly. Yeah. And when just going just to kind of bounce back to the um, the visual tracking, you're you know you're obviously monitoring where the visual gaze is is going. Um, what kind of outcomes are you looking at? Are you looking at how they then strike the ball? Yeah. So okay. So that's we're we we do not know yet. You know the the problem with doing where they're striking the ball is it gets really complicated with. Okay, you could say even like exit velocity of the ball to measure how well they're hitting it based off of their gaze strategy. Um, but the the way that they like the exit velocity of the ball and the ball metrics and how well they do is is really dependent on where the pitch was, what like where they were standing on the plate. What there's like so many mental factors that go into it. So what we're thinking of doing, what we're hoping to do, is actually like get players who have had metrics that are successful in this particular area over a long period of time. And so previous studies, and and I'm sure you're familiar with like the expert versus novice model. This happens, the expert versus novice model happens in a lot of research. And so they get somebody who's really good in the sport and somebody who's like a high school athlete in the sport and they compare their strategies and all kinds of things. 
And so the expert novice uh, research that's been available so far on gaze tracking is saying like, oh, they use major league players, uh, major league baseball players, or like AAA, so high level minor league players versus high school players. And they find a little bit of difference, but for me, I would even want to dig a little bit deeper. And it's it's not just major league players because there's actually some major league baseball players that still don't hit the ball that well, relatively speaking. So I basically am going to go after like the 1% of the 1% and try to get the guys who actually have great um, swing decision metrics. And so we're talking about guys who are like literally the, the best at, at selecting the correct pitches to hit. Not just like, oh, they're good baseball players, but like they're really good in this particular area. So all that to say, going back to your original question, are we going to measure the outcomes? Well, we're actually going to find guys who already have the outcomes we're looking for, like, and have been tested over a long period of time. So I'm like, we're going to go after some big name players who have proven themselves in these particular areas over a long period of time in professional baseball and recruit them to the study and then study their gaze tracking and like deem that as elite level strategies. So we're kind of going, doing what you said backwards. We're not going to just test everyone and see who has the best bat at ball metrics. We're going to go after people who've proven themselves at the highest level and see what they're doing. And when when are you kind of expecting to finish the research or when can people expect to perhaps see this research or the outcomes of it? Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I would say like we're we're delving into like the pilot study right now and really just getting used to the technology and what kind of things we're going to run into. But realistically, like the professional baseball season is still going on and it will be for another month. Um, and also after a 10 month long ride, those guys aren't going to want to come right away to the facility. So um, realistically, we're trying to look at like later in the off season, which would be January, February to even do this study. And then by the time it's published and everything, I mean, we're talking about a year from now, like hopefully, <laughs> so that's and that's like the reason that's the fun of the research process kind of is when and if we actually get to publish a study like this it's like we all know the work and the the like extensive I mean I guess I wouldn't even say extensive but tedious work that goes into it for a long period of time before you actually see a research paper published and then it just gives you a really good idea also of like when research is published People have already known about this for a long time, and you know, research tends to be behind a little bit. So, as far as the time frame, I would say, psh, hoping a year from now, maybe. And are you still are you still involved in strength conditioning and coaching on a day to day basis? Um, no, <laughs> and and I feel good about that. So basically, the transition. Um, I've spent the last ten years as, as a strength coach, and then. I basically made a decision at the end of 2018 season with the Houston Astros that I just, you know, I, I was going to start a transition out of strength and conditioning and more into administration and or, you know, just player evaluation um, with the hopes of becoming a general manager someday. And so you're basically interviewing me at like the first step of, or the, I would say, I would call this maybe the second step of that process, which the first step was going back to school for a degree in research, um, a degree in biomechanics. Like there's a heavy math and and uh, physics and statistics focus with my classes, and that may sound kind of weird. You're like, why? You know, you're going to go be a business person or a GM, um, 
and you want that background, but actually in professional baseball, and I think in a lot of sports these days, like knowing the numbers and understanding how to code and do all those things is really important for um, your development into a general manager. And I just didn't want to skip steps. So I took that step out of strength and conditioning, went back to school. Um, the degree is in research and that just means it's a lot of math and coding and stuff. And so now I'm at driveline doing the research. I'll be back in professional baseball next year with a team likely um, not in strength and conditioning. So I do, it's still a passion of mine. Um, Ultimately, my degree is human movement sciences or biomechanics. Um, But I'm going to be just applying that lens, applying that perspective of how the body moves to player evaluation and like other areas of sports. So that was a super long answer to say, no, (laughs) I'm not, I'm no longer, I no longer am trying to be a strength coach, even though I'm not, you know, if the right opportunity came open, I don't think I would shut it out completely, but I also have other aspirations as far as like being in different leadership roles within an organization. And I guess it's not given your background as a, as a coordinator, which is perhaps a bit more managerial anyway, I guess that's not too shocking that you're you're heading that way because you've you've had that experience quite early on at actually managing and coordinating members of staff yeah rather than you know being you know I guess like a purebred in the gym strength coach only um not not to say that's just what they do but you've had that kind of slightly different role with people yeah I mean that's like that's always been a passion of mine and so you know by the time when I was 26 I was hired to be the the coordinator for the Cardinals. And that was, that was, that was, you know, like looking back, there's no way I was ready for that role, but at the same time, like leadership has always been a passion of mine. And I would say like a, a strength or a, a calling even of mine. And just like, you know, it's been that, it's been kind of that way since I was young. Like I've always been the team captain, the leader, the hard, you know, the hard worker, the person that's going to say something that needs to be said, like from a really young age, you know? And so um, that's always just been a, I, w- I would call it a calling to be honest with you, not a passion, but not something I read about and write, take notes about. And I do that too, actually. Like I do really pay attention to those things and read, read the leadership books and all that. But, but it started way before I was a manager for the Cardinals. Um, so I just realized basically like being a strength and conditioning coach within a, a sports organization, you can only exercise those leadership muscles so far, you know, and then you're always going to be at the mercy of, you know, just hoping that the pitching coaches, the hitting coaches, the managers, the front office all share your leadership vision. And if they don't, you're a strength coach. And so you're going to be, you know, you're, you're not going to be making those decisions. And when I say those decisions, I mean like how we interact with the players and like what the discipline structure looks like, what the reward structure looks like, how are we empowering them? You know, all of these things, who are we hiring? You know, all those decisions, you don't get to make those as a strength coach. You do within your own department. And so that kind of fed me for a while. Like personally, I was fulfilled for a while to be in a managerial role for, I guess, five of my seven seasons in professional baseball. Um, Because within a department, that's excellent practice, but I just, I want something bigger. I want a bigger challenge. I want more responsibility. And so if I want to do that, then I got to move out of strength and conditioning and kind of pivot to a different role. And it sounds like you're going to be 
um, very well equipped to go into that role, you know, because you can appreciate the athleticism and how you develop and manage the physical attributes of an athlete. You know the statistics. You, I guess, you know, baseball is a hell of a statistical and technical sport. Um, you can look at that through the research in biomechanics that you're doing. Um, and obviously your your passion or not passion but your your calling is leadership um is there anything you think you need to personally work on between now and perhaps being a gm is there any areas where you feel like you're weaker or need to focus on sorry that's a beast of a question (laughs) yeah so many areas like i i mean (laughs) it's it's like i'm at the bottom of the mountain you know and like i said this is step number two you know so i have a lot to learn um, but to your point, and something I think is going to help me in the long run is that I did spend so long, you know, understanding how the body moves and how one guy can be so su- successful and the same body, the same body type can be such a failure, <laughs> you know, so I can, like, I think that when I do get that opportunity that I'll have a very, very unique lens to look through. Um, so I definitely don't like regret spending so much time in the strength and conditioning realm. And I've also had excellent, excellent mentors in the hitting and pitching realms as well, which is going to help me. And I think even possibly turn into a job opportunity. And so I, I'm grateful for those, you know, learning experiences because I think a lot of general managers um, in every sport, every sport these days, they're not familiar with the on field, like physical, body like they just aren't they're they're really good at numbers they might be a great business person but they don't know how to evaluate what's going on from a physical standpoint and so that could be a shortcoming of like today's general manager whereas I think I'm gonna you know in the long run I took the long way around but in the long run it's gonna help me uh what do I have to learn god I don't know so much like I don't know like get it or start I definitely am gonna have to be in scouting um and player evaluation and just understanding, I think, like the rules, you know, just of when, what, how, all of it, you know, and, and I have a lot more to learn in the statistics uh, area and also like coding and and being able to take a data set and really dive in and understand what, what the numbers mean. Um, I definitely have a better understanding of that now than I did a year ago, but I have a lot more work to do in a practical setting and not just in a classroom. Um, so, yeah, there's tons of that. And then also like from the leadership standpoint, you know, I'm not ready to take over an organization today. So I can't, the the next move that I make, the next job that I take, I'm not necessarily looking for like the most, the winningness organization or the best, you know, organization out there, like from a a winning standpoint, from what the, the fans see, I'm looking, I'm really diving into who's running that organization and who can mentor me from a leadership standpoint further down my path. And I think that's an important note, you know, if anyone out there is listening, strength coach or not, or whatever, it's like, when you're taking a job, you have to like, really take a deep dive into who's running the organization. Because like, you're not, I mean, wins matter. And it's fun to be a part of a winning organization in some ways. But also like, you want to be around people who can really mentor you um, in what you want to do. And so I'm like, for example, there's an organization that's contacted me about a job and I'm like going down the list of their executives and just Googling the heck out of them, looking at their social media profiles, listening to their podcast, listening to what they say over and over and over again so I can get a better understanding of their personal values and not just like what their wins and loss record is. Because 
that could be really bad and they could be in a rebuild phase, you know, or it could be really good and, and they could be horrible people, you know, <laughs> who knows what's going on behind the scenes. So you have to be able to really do your research and read between the lines to see what kind of leadership is currently running the organization. I think it's interesting as well, because I think a lot of people um, trying to get into the industry, whether that's, um, you know, I guess, skills analysis, uh, skills coach, strength and conditioning, whatever kind of part of wider sports performance and medicine you're going into. I think there's always this perception that if you go to the, the, the sooner you get to the best team, the more you'll develop. But I think probably the opposite is true, isn't it? And actually, you don't want to go to the best team. You want to go to a team that maybe there's some lower hanging fruit and there's more work you can do and there's more perhaps trust that can be placed on you to do some of the work itself rather than going yeah. into that finished product where basically you don't want to screw up. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's value to both. But to your point, like you just you definitely see a lot of people who are fans. You know, they want to work for the biggest name team because it's the biggest name team so they can wear the logo and put it on their Twitter account. And it's like, you're, I mean, sometimes those things go hand in hand, like LSU, the LSU Tigers, the college I mentioned that, that I was at, that's a really good name to have on your resume, resume. But also I learned so much there and they gave me a lot of responsibility. I got my hands dirty. I wasn't just off to the side doing nothing. You know, I was a part of it and I was fortunate that those two did go hand in hand for me. I was really, I d developed a lot there. Um, but sometimes to your point, yeah, it's a finished product and they kind of already have their ways. And, and it also depends on where you're at in your career. It was good for me to go into a finished product when I was 22. Cause like, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, like, so I could, good. I, I need to go into a finished product where I could see how, how well it was run. And also they gave me some responsibility and told me, Hey, this is how you should run it. And I did, like, you know, and I was happy for that guidance. Nowadays, I'm 32, I'm 10 years into my career. And as I said, leadership is a calling of mine. Organizational development is a calling of mine. I'm fascinated by culture change. I'm fascinated by quick culture change. When you see that team go from a losing team to a championship, like what happened in one year, I'm fascinated by those things. And I don't necessarily want a finished product going into it. I want something that's a little bit of a mess that I might be able to, to contribute a little bit more to. So it just depends on where you're at in your career. Um, but yeah, always selecting the biggest logo is, is probably a wrong choice if that's your motivation. Now I have, I have some big logos on my resume, so I try, I'm not dogging people, but I definitely can tell you like, I'm not a sports fan. I'm not a baseball fan. I'm not any kind of fan of sports. So I didn't make those choices just to get a logo on my resume for sure. You can probably also talk to athletes more on, you know, a human level, you know, rather than being starstruck as well when you're not as, you know, fanatical oh, about God. who they are. I definitely have some funny stories of like not knowing who extremely famous players were. And I like it. Like, some, you know, sometimes it's embarrassing. Like, I'll be, I'll be like, who's that? And they're like, what? <laughs> like, this guy's been playing for 10 years. But I like it. Like, I, I would rather... Like you said, I would rather go in with a clean slate speaking to a professional athlete than go in and be like, oh, I've been watching this guy for 10 years, you know, and I can't talk to him because I, I, I'm a fan of him. Like, I'm not a fan of anyone. And I, the only people I'm a fan of are people who I have worked one-on-one -on -one directly with, and I know that they work hard, you know, they, that they are, um, you know, I don't want to say a good person, but just that they're in tune, they're aware and like, those are the people I root for. 
I don't root for someone just because I grew up watching him on TV. Like, I, I'm just not a fan. I feel blessed and fortunate that I didn't grow up, you know, with that kind of starstruck fan mentality. Um, and it, it's not even a knock on people who did because that's normal. But I just grew up in a household where we didn't idolize sports people. We really, we really didn't. Sports were on and they were around, but we did not idolize, idolize them by any means. How do you find the actual athletes, you know, especially the high profile athletes, um, how do you find they respond when, I don't know, you go up to them and you introduce yourself and you ask them what their name is, something they're probably rarely used to? <laughs> oh, good. That's a great question. Uh, sometimes I'll, I even will know who it is, but I still ask their name. Like, that's weird. I think it's weird when people are like, hey, I'm Rachel. And then they shake your hand. They don't say their name. I think that's weird. Like, you shouldn't assume, I don't care how famous you are or how long you've been, whatever, like, just introduce yourself. It's like a, create a human connection immediately. Don't create a superiority. Um, and so I always am like, I introduce myself. I don't, I don't expect that anyone thinks I know them. I don't know. Maybe, I don't, I've never had any, like, adverse reactions immediately, but um, I'm sure they might have been like, oh, that girl doesn't know who I am. And I don't care. Like, have, you, have you ever read um, Legacy by James Kerr? Um, I have. Because I, I think there's a there's a good kind of um, tangent point in his book that relates to this, where he you know he talks about good people make good All Blacks, and you know the sweeping oh, yeah. the shed concept, and you know you're never bigger than your organisation or your your current position in that team. Oh, I, I, like when I read that book, I was like, I was like, I don't know who like who I do know who like you know, started the culture with the All Blacks, like you can read it in the book, but it's like, man, you're, that guy was speaking straight from my soul and my playbook. Like, It's a great leadership book as well, isn't it? Yeah, I used some things in that book. Um, for example, like the peer council and stuff um, with some of the players I've worked with. And, and it's, it's really great. Yeah, I, I love that book. Definitely on my nightstand. Besides Legacy, is there kind of any books or places you personally go to learn about organizational behavior development and leadership um there's another there's a couple of books that stick out one of them is the score takes care of itself it's by bill walsh um bill walsh is, was a famous football coach in the united states and um american football not soccer <laughs> he was a football coach and he basically took a team who was a losing team and within two years won back-to-back -back super bowls and so he talks about like rapid culture change and man, that book is, I couldn't put it down. It's a long book. It's thick, but I could not put it down. And then, and I've read it several times now and it's like, it's a, you know, it's a textbook for me. It's a story and it's written by that coach, his son and one of his players. So it's like three authors, really, really interesting, like perspective on a book. Um, but yeah, it's like a textbook. It's not even a story anymore for me. Uh, and then also there's a book called The Man Watching, and that's by, um, it's, oh, I'm trying to think of the author's name. It's, the book is written about Anson Dorrance, and Anson Dorrance is a, a soccer coach in the United States. He has worked for UNC or uh, University of North Carolina for, I don't know, I think 40 years now. Um, and he's won 25 national championships out of the 40 years that he's been been there. Maybe that's even, that's not even I think it's like 25 out of the 30 years that he's been there. 
And also, like, he has – he's made an impact on women's soccer, period. I mean, if you want to know, like, w- women's soccer in the United States has, has gotten a lot of press really lately yeah. um, because of the World Cup. And and also, like, the, t- the 1999 team, like, they – you know, they got a lot of press. But, like, Anson Dorrance was, was a huge, huge catalyst for even starting up women's soccer in the United States. And so talk about culture change. I'm not just talking about a university soccer team. He actually, like, in some ways was was a huge pioneer in the sport of women's soccer and, and had to change a lot of culture surrounding that. And his book, that book, man, again, a textbook. Like, I'm writing down, like, different stuff I can do based off of what, what I read in that book. And also another interesting format. So the book was written, and I, I'm failing on the name of the author, the book was written by a guy who spent four years with the UNC women's soccer team and observed them over the period of four years and wrote a book about his experiences. So it's not just like your normal biography. I mean, he went really deep into his research and wrote an excellent book. And, and uh, again, not a short one, but oh man, it's really good. Really great. What I'll do is I'll try and, um, I'll try and find that book and I'll, and the, and the others and I'll, um, I'll link them into the, the show notes of this episode so people can find them. Um yeah. Just going, it's a bit of a backward step, really, in the conversation. But um, I'm aware that you've lived in lots of places, um, you know, in your journey yeah. to where you are today. Um, how how have you found navigating that aspect of life? You know, moving on the being on the road a lot. I love it. I love it. Um, I had a friend, like a friend of mine, the other day was like, "Oh, um, oh, moving is I'm so stressed or whatever." And I just said, "Like, I love moving." I, I I think maybe at first I maybe thought it was stressful, but that, that, that time of my life so long ago, I can't even remember. Like I look forward to moving to new cities. I look forward to, I say shedding my skin. Like, um, you know, when I moved to Europe, I had to pack all my things in three suitcases. And so that, that means you get rid of a lot of junk. You know, you get rid of a lot of, a lot of stuff. You don't have like all this extra like noise in your life. And that's from a literal standpoint of like, you literally just get rid of clothing and things, you know, but you also get rid of people and you get rid of identities and you get rid of communities that maybe weren't serving you. And so over time, it's like, I've moved, I don't know, I I stopped counting, but I always just say like 13 or 14 times in the past 10 years and to different countries, to different situations, like. I mean, man, I've lived on, I've slept on floors, I've slept on air mattresses, all the whole thing, couches. And I just think like, it's, I love it. It keeps my mind clear. It keeps my, my house clear (laughs) of things, but that's a metaphor. You know, my mind is clear. My, my conversation, the conversations I have with people are clear because over time, the people that have stuck around are the people that I really want to keep around. Number one. And they really want to keep me around. Number two, it's like, I moved to Amsterdam for a year. If you're not, you know, if you're not like a good friend of mine, we're not going to talk very much. So the people that have stuck around in, in many ways are like, you know, it's like my, my closest, my most important possessions, the possessions that I've kept for the past 10 years, those are my most important possessions. And so, and everything else just falls away. And you know what? I don't even remember the stuff that I got rid of. And I don't remember the people that I got rid of either. (laughs) Like I just let it, I let it fall away. So like being a nomad to me is, I, I love it. I think it's almost natural. It's very, this has been talked about in in several books that I've read. This is going down a rabbit hole, but 
what are podcasts for. <laughs> no, um, yeah, this is going down a rabbit hole, but I've read about this in several uh, books now. And the one that I'm thinking about is Sebastian Younger. I think it's called Tribe. And he talks about how like, it's weird that we live in like these big houses and, and collect items. Like it's strange. And that never used to be a thing. Like I'm talking about pre, you know, like way back when we were hunter and gatherer societies, like you didn't bring a bunch of stuff with you when you were traveling all over, like no, these nomadic societies that went where the food was, they didn't bring a bunch of stuff with them. It's just, they brought their family and like some food and maybe, you know, I don't know, a necklace that they made out of shells. Like what you possessions. It's weird that we like hoard our possessions and keep all these things that have like, we, we put our emotional value into things and we keep them with us and travel around with them. And if we move, we move our whole house and we, you know, it's like, it's weird. It's not normal sense of security. Totally. And, and it makes you, when you live a nomadic lifestyle, which I don't know a lot of people out there who do, and it's common in sports, but I definitely, I'm probably a person who has taken it to the extreme, <laughs> but um, I, I just like, when you live that lifestyle, it, it really keeps things simple. Like if you've ever visited, um, it really hit me a few years ago. I guess it was only two years ago. I went to, um, Laos. I spent some, I spent three weeks in a village in Laos. That's not even on Google maps. And these people, as you can imagine, don't have a lot of worldly possessions, but the community was so strong and it was so peaceful because the disparity of wealth was like nothing. Everyone had the same thing. Pretty much everyone had the same house. Every, you know, like no one was the, the cr- crime isn't a thing because there's nothing to steal. <laughs> like just everyone, everyone's job every day was to wake up. The kids went to school, of course, but like to wake up and live and, and spend time with your family. There was no like striving to make a lot of money so you can buy a bigger house and, this American dream that we've created in our minds, like it just the, the most simple living and the most peaceful um, environment and community I've ever been in. And, and I learned a lot from that. And I, and I, it hit me like, no, this is no longer, Oh, I'm, I move around a lot because of sports and I don't have a lot of things like, no, this is a choice. I don't want a lot of things in my life. Things being possessions. I don't want a lot of things. I don't mind moving. I like it. I enjoy the clarity and peace that it brings to my life where where can kind of people track you and find out what you're up to um i would say i mean i've got a i have a twitter i'm marginally active on there but i'm i'm on instagram quite a bit um at rachel.balkovec and then my website you can reach out to me through email there um www.rachelbalkovec.com keep it simple and then um yeah i don't know i i um i know you had mentioned earlier if if people are interested and, and this is a also a passion of mine is just like mentoring young professionals. I do have a website and a course for young professionals, um, resume and cover letter and also just like career. I I would say calling, you know, finding your calling and understanding where your career might go. Uh, that's the virtual handshake academy.com and on Instagram at the virtual handshake Academy. And it's something that I'm, I'm extremely passionate about is just helping people. Like I said, I, I feel like I have a calling and, and like, I, I think everyone has a calling, 
but it's it's muted or it's subdued by societal values or people telling them they can't do it or whatever it is. And so I, I just love helping young professionals, young people in general, find that calling and then also kind of getting them that first step towards, you know, well, how do I do that? You know, how do I get the internship? And so that's kind of molded into me starting a resume and cover letter service, but it also talks about networking, social media, you know, finding your purpose and how to communicate that through professional materials. So that's how that came about. Um, and again, that's the virtual handshake Academy. Um, so that's another good place that I kind of, that I am, um, where you could find me. And do you, do you kind of mentor people through that service yeah. or is it more you give them the tools or, well, or both? You know, I have like some free videos and like free materials on there. Um, but it's, it's like, Really, the benefit is, and there's a course, and, and I should also mention, like, 25% of the course fees go back to a scholarship that I'm starting. And so there's a course, there's materials, but if you actually do, like, a one-on-one consultation where I, I take you through your resume and cover letter, I it's a mentorship. Like, we have some deep conversations about where your life's headed, <laughs> you know, and, like, how and how to take the first step to get there. And that's what I really love. You know, like, ultimately, it's like, oh, okay, resume, like, it's creating a word document, you know, or whatever, and how, how to save that as a PDF. Like those are things that are actually in the course. Um, but the more important part of course is like learning your purpose and your why as, as, a, as a young person getting into the career field that you, that you want to be in. Uh, why are you doing that? You know, taking a deep dive usually ends up taking a deep dive into like your upbringing and you know, what happened and what were the struggles that you went through and how can you communicate those in a cover letter and set yourself apart? and let people know that you're unique and, and you have a calling and it's not just applying for a job. So yeah, that's, it turns into more of a mentorship than, than it is like, Oh, here's a resume template. Like, yeah, th- that's there. Um, but I just want to help people find their calling. Cause I think it, it makes things so much more rich, you know, and I don't want to say it makes them easier, but it makes those, it makes hard decisions easier to make in your career when you feel like it's your purpose, you know? And is this, is this service to kind of help people with any, any career or is it geared towards strength and conditioning or certain sports professions or kind of any of it? Um, it's, it's any career. And I've, I've mentored people who are like, I mean, I mentored someone who was like working for Chick-fil-A and, and wanted a manager job with Chick-fil-A, who was an awesome guy, by the way. Um, but it's, I would say it's like geared towards the, the course materials and just, you know, it's my background. So it's geared towards more like sports and stuff. It's just a, um, easier angle but it's for anyone really yeah i guess a lot of people will probably stumble across it because of your involvement in sport right but yeah yeah um brilliant well i think that's all we've got time for but thank you so much for being so open and honest and transparent about your views and what you're up to um <laughs> i think the listeners will agree i could i could listen to you speak about life for a lot longer than we've got today <laughs> yeah that's yeah this podcast started about like research with, with eye tracking and ended on us being in villages in the middle of nowhere. I think this is a good podcast. Okay. <laughs> like you said, that's what, uh, that's what podcasts are for. I think. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you too. Thank you, Rachel.